Well, good morning. Good morning. Good to be with you today. My name is Corey. I'm one of the pastors here, and we're going to just dive right into Mark's gospel. Uh, we've been in the gospel of Mark for the last numbers of weeks, uh, back into September of last year, and we're actually not going to finish Mark until January 8th of 2024. So you know where we're going to be. If you want to get ahead, you want to kind of surprise yourself with the end, you can, you can just read through the Gospel of Mark and you can find that out and, and, and uh, be prepared for what's coming, right? I want to do something a little interactive this morning. So what I want you to do is I want you to, if you're like me and you're aggressively introverted, you're going to hate this, but uh, I want you to spend some time speaking to the people around you, answering this particular question. What is clear about Jesus in the Bible? Okay? What is clear about Jesus in the Bible? Go ahead and talk amongst yourselves. If you're aggressively introverted, just say no thank you. And go ahead and do that for a few seconds now. What one side of our auditorium is a lot more participatory. Okay, all right. What were some of the answers that we got? Come on, what are some of the answers we got? What's clear about Jesus in the Bible? Over here. Out loud. He loves us, good. Son of God. Fully God. What else we got? Human. Human. Messiah. Yes. In the center. Perfect. He's perfect. King of kings, Lord of lords. Amen. Other things. Died for our sins. sins. Yes. Yes, he did that too. Turned water into wine. Lots of miracles. What else did Jesus do? Way of truth, life. In tandem. Very good. (laughs) Historic West Park people know their stuff. Over here, what do we got? What's clear about Jesus? He's the image of the invisible God. My absolute favorite passage of scripture, Colossians chapter one. Yes. Okay, good. This is awesome. These are things that are clear about the person of Jesus in the scriptures. Now, what about some of the things that we hear from people who are not Christians? People who are not church folk, who don't have the same kind of belief systems that we do about the person of Christ. You probably heard things like this. Well, Jesus was a great moral teacher, right? It's a popular narrative of the day. Uh, he was, he's probably a prophet, or he's a, he was a revolutionary. He did things well, well before his time. Uh, he, was a, he was a rebel, or, and then you can get some of the negative things. Like Jesus was, like, he was nuts. People don't walk around in ancient Jerusalem claiming to be God. He was, he was, maybe he was a liar. He was just fabricating this whole thing. Or maybe he was just a fictional person. We don't actually know if he existed. Like, that's, that's some of the stuff that we hear around, right? So all the things we are talking about, that's good. Today we are going to look at the most important question of all the questions in the Bible. Who do we say that Jesus is? That's the most significant question of the scriptures, and it's actually the entire portion, the entire reason for why Mark writes down Peter's firsthand account, is to ask this question, who is Jesus really? So that's what we're going to be looking at today. As I was preparing uh, for this message, uh, I was thinking about glasses a lot. And who, who, where are glasses where? Yeah, all right, right here, Wendy, yeah. Yeah, we got glasses on. My, my little guy has just started wearing glasses in the last few months. He's Q's button. Uh, but he's also got this patch on one of his eyes that he has to wear a few hours every day so that he can strengthen his weaker eye. So if you've, if you've had a kid in that kind of environment, you know, like they don't really, really like to wear the thing. But in doing so, they're going to be able to see a little bit better later on. And I bring that up to say this. What would happen for those of you who don't wear corrective lenses if I gave you my glasses? Would you see better or worse? You'd see worse, right? Uh, Or if I took somebody else's glasses because I need them, what if I took Wendy's glasses? 
I'd be blind. Okay, I get you. Yeah. So these kinds of things, we, we think about them, it, make, it makes sense to our brains, right? I obviously wouldn't see clearly if I took my glasses off. Actually, what would happen is you would all start to look like you were surfing on some kind of wave. That wouldn't be good. Start to feel a little dizzy. But if I took somebody else's lenses on, I wouldn't be able to see at all, even though the purpose is the same. The purpose for those lenses is the same thing, right? So with that in mind, we're going to dive into our passage. Today's title is Sight and Kingdom Clarity. Now, this is two parts. I'm also going to be preaching next week on the second half of this text, because having sight doesn't mean that we're clear, right? Can we all agree to that? We can say, sure, that's, that's a fair statement. And here's today's big idea. Having clarity on God's kingdom, because that's what Jesus was here to preach and proclaim, demands that we see him clearly. If we don't have good sight on Jesus, we don't actually understand his kingdom. So I'm going to invite you to stand as we're going to read today's passage. Mark chapter 8, verses 22 through 33. It's going to feel like it ends very abruptly. It does. And then next week, we're going to continue on this same thread in uh, next week's sermon as we continue. All right. Verse 22 and following. They, being the disciples, came to Bethsaida, and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. When he had spit on the man's eyes, he put his hands on him, and Jesus asked, Do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking around. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened, and his sight was restored. And he saw everything clearly. Jesus sent him home, saying, Don't even go into the village. Jesus and his disciples went on from the villages around Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked them, Why, Who do people say that I am? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still some others say one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say that I am? Peter answered, you are the Christ, you are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the teachers of the law, that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about these things, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him sternly. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter saying, get behind me, Satan. He said, you do not have in mind the concerns of God, but only human concerns. This is God's word. You can be seated. So this is what we have and what we're going to. So I'm going to just dive right into the text, explain it, and then apply it. Make sense? Works for everybody? Good. So the disciples and Jesus came to a town called Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man, and, uh, to, and they were begging Jesus to touch him. Now, this Bethsaida account comes right after the heels of what Pastor Neil preached about last week in the feeding of the 4,000, which Jesus had already done earlier when he fed 5,000 men, accumulating somewhere between 15 and 20,000 people. So it's a, a second miracle of the same kind of likeness. And this is also interesting because in this portion here, somebody brought a blind man. This actually happens in Mark chapter 2 when friends of a paralytic man bring them to Jesus, and remember the story, they can't get into the house because there's so many people there, so they tear, a roof, uh, tear the roof open, put a hole in the roof, and they lower the guy down so that he can touch Jesus. Jesus makes the claim that he's the son of man. And then Jesus does this. He takes him, the blind man, by the hand and leads him out of the village. Why did Jesus do this? Jesus has been making public spectacle a lot recently. He had just fed 4,000 people with a very little amount of food. He had done the same thing earlier on. He had claimed to be the Son of Man, a divine title that he claims for himself. 
He had also done some things and said some things on the Sabbath that were really starting to make the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, quite concerned about who this guy thinks he is. So why would he take a blind man who can't see what he's about to do out of the town? Specifically because of his compassion for him. Jesus takes this blind man out of the village. And then this, this is not the first time that Jesus has used spit to uh, do some kind of healing. And there's a lot of different views on why this would have taken place, but the views are less important than the fact that Jesus was showing and doing something that we call a speech act. He was doing something that was known to the people. Uh, in the ancient world, people thought that saliva had some kind of like uh, healing properties. And if somebody was holy, then it kind of had healing properties. Does Jesus think that his spit is going to heal the guy? No. It's not the point. But he spits in and he lays his hands on him and then he asks the question of the blind man, do you see anything? It's a little bit of a weird question, right? Well, the blind guy hasn't seen anything, so why would he see it now? Obviously, the touch of Jesus, he has in mind to heal this person, but look what happens. And the blind man, he looked up at Jesus and he said, I see people, but they look like trees that are walking. So Jesus then laid his hands on his eyes again and when he opened his eyes his sight was restored and he saw everything clearly so then Jesus sent him to his home saying do not even enter the village now what's interesting about this is this is the only time recorded in any of the gospels where Jesus does a miracle that seems to not have worked Right? He touches the guy's eyes and says, do you see anything? Because to, to the reader of Mark's gospel, if they haven't heard this story before, they're going, well, Jesus healed other people. So like one touch should be it, right? And so he touches the guy and he, well, I, I kind of see, but I, I don't have clarity. I'm not seeing clearly. It's, it's actually the word I'm seeing dimly. He's seeing things that look like people, but they kind of look more like trees than they do like people. Here's one of these problematic, weird places in the New Testament that we have to do a little bit of digging work. There's a few interpretations of this text. Let's, let's just be a little bit more uh, interactive. Hands up, we think that Jesus could have healed the guy. First time. Okay? Fair. I agree. So why is it that when Jesus has to do it twice? A couple different possibilities. Jesus knew that he was willing and able to perform the miracle, or he wouldn't have touched the guy at all. So this second try must have a different purpose to the healing than just the fact that he was not able to do so. There are a few places in the New Testament where Jesus makes statements like, I could not do any miracles here. Or the gospel writers include that Jesus couldn't do a particular miracle in a place because of lack of faith or because uh, people were un unconcerned about who he was. They weren't going to buy it anyway, whatever that looks like. So there's that possibility. The second possibility is that man probably didn't have faith until he started to see. Because who brought the man to Jesus? He didn't come on his own. Well, he's, he's blind. He's not going to find his way. But he have this friends bringing this blind man to the person of Christ and begging Jesus. The friends begged Jesus is what the text says. The blind man didn't beg him. And so maybe it was that the friends had faith and then Jesus touches the guy and then he started to have faith and the proof of his faith was the second, the second touch in the actual healing. That's another possible way of looking at it. I think that this has absolutely nothing to do with Jesus' capability or willingness to heal the man, but has everything to do with the audience. Jesus is with his disciples. He takes them out of the city with this blind man on their own for an intimate moment. And he touches the man's eyes, 
Remember I used that phrase, a speech act? We're going to see the act of the speech in the second part of this text, where Jesus is with the disciples asking this man, do you see anything? Are you seeing clearly? He says, no, I still see dimly. Jesus gives him time, touches him again, assures him of his power, and then when he opens his eyes, he does see, and what does it say? He saw everything clearly. That's the point. And it's going to be contrasted to the fact that the disciples still don't get it. They've been following Jesus around. They've been watching him do the things that he's done. And they're still not exactly sure who he is. Now, there's a very interesting phrase here. He says, and he sent him to his home saying, don't even go into the village. This is what we call, and we're going to talk about it next week, the messianic secret. This is one of the major themes of Mark's gospel. Jesus very, very, very rarely just comes out with who he is. Doesn't actually make that claim very public. He uses pseudonym titles like the Son of Man as a divine title he takes on for himself. But in Mark's gospel to this point, he has not identified himself as God's Messiah. Other people have. So keep that in mind as we go into this next text. Verse 27. Now there's a shift. And in your English Bibles, you're going to have a, a little heading that says Peter's Confession or something along those same lines. This is one of those places where I really don't like that we have inserts and headings at places because it should flow directly into the next phraseology. And so Jesus went on with his disciples, so they were with him at the healing, to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, a mostly Gentile area. And in a Gentile area, he asked his disciples on the way, who do people say that I am? What's the public opinion? Who are people questioning me to be? Because by this time, Jesus has done some pretty fantastic things, right? Like that, as, as we've gone through the Gospel of Mark, there's stories that we hear all the time. Like Jesus walked on water, he feeds the 5,000, he heals the blind man, he heals the mute, all these kinds of things. And they can kind of get um, familiar to us in an unhelpful way. So he asks the question and posits to the disciples, hey guys, what's the popular opinion? What's the, what are people, who are people saying I am on Twitter or whatever? But instead of answering the, answering the question correctly, the disciples go, well, this is what people say. They think that you're John the Baptist. And there's some debate as to whether or not John the Baptist had already been killed by this point because the gospel records don't line up exactly in timing. But if John the Baptist is still alive, then Jesus isn't him. And if John the Baptist and Jesus are the same person, then the whole baptism thing is weird because Jesus was there and John baptized him. He's not baptizing himself. Others say he's Elijah. Now this is significant because as the Jews believed, Elijah had to come first in the preparation of the Messiah. That was the kind of their historical view. Is that, but John the Baptist fulfills that in the power of Elijah. And so he, he comes on the scene and prepares the way of the Lord. And that's, that's a significant thing that the Jews believed and that we should understand. And then they say, or that you are one of the prophets. And this is kind of likening to, you're like Moses or you're like Isaiah. You're like the big dogs. You're the, you're, the, you're the main voice piece from God to the people. So you're John the Baptist, you're Elijah, you're one of the prophets. And then Jesus flips it on his head and he says, okay, who do you say I am? Put yourself in this position a little bit. What's the popular opinion? We don't know. Who should these guys have known that he was? 
They've been with him for a substantial amount of time. They've seen the things that he's doing. And Peter correctly answers him, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You are God's anointed. You are God's chosen and selected savior of the world. That's what he says in that one statement. You are the Messiah. And then look what's interesting. Jesus, he, after he asked him a question, strictly charged them to tell nobody about his identity. Now, there's just some interesting things that we got to do with that. Why would it be that Jesus doesn't want people to know who he is? A couple things. Based on what Peter's about to say and Peter's about to do. They had this belief that the Messiah was coming to, to break down and, and rid the Jews of the oppression of the Romans. That the Messiah was somehow going to primarily be a military leader who was going to come and overthrow the powers of oppression above them so that they could go back to being truly Jewish and, and enjoy the land in the way that they had, had, they had done with, the, with the, king of, the King David and King Solomon before the exile. And, before, uh, and after the exile, when they come back to the land and they never really fit right, and then, then the Romans come in. So they had this view that the Messiah was coming as a military leader to overthrow the Roman rule. And so Peter correctly identifies Jesus, but for the wrong purpose. Who, are, who do you say that I am? Peter, Peter, the first guy, gets up. Well, you're the Messiah, and I have my own view of what that means. I have my own set of clarity around what that is. And so Jesus says, don't tell anybody about this. Again, this is this messianic secret. He's not just coming out and saying who he is, even though he's now been rightly identified. Now, to this point in the Gospel of Mark, there have been five instances where Jesus is correctly identified. None of them come from the disciples until Mark 8:29. The first one comes at the very beginning of the book where the narrator, Mark, writes out that this is the beginning of the gospel of the kingdom of God of Jesus Christ. He just lays it out. The next time is God when he sees Jesus in the baptism and says, this is my beloved son whom I love, listen to him. And then the only other three times that it happens to this point, Mark, are demons rightly identifying Jesus. Interesting. That the first time that a human does so, he correctly identifies but for wrong purpose. We get a little bit more dialogue from Matthew's account. Matthew, Matthew bored from Mark, and he kind of expands on things a little bit. So Jesus asked in the same interaction, what about you? Who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. So that's the full title. It means the same thing as Christ. And Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood. Uh, that purple doesn't really show up. By flesh and blood, but by my Father who has shown it to you in heaven. And I tell you that Peter, on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not overcome it. So in Mark's gospel, we get Peter saying, you're the Christ. And Peter says, okay, now be quiet about it. And in Matthew's gospel, he, we have this little bit of an interaction where Jesus says, okay, yes, Peter, you are correct. You are right. You are clear on my identity but you're not really clear on what it means. So the next verse in verse 31 is, and so Jesus, after this, after the proclamation that, that Jesus is God's Messiah, he is the chosen, he is the uh, anointed one, he is God's perfect sacrifice and spotless lamb, he began to teach them that the son of man, Jesus's favorite title for himself, and Mark continues to use it, must do what? Suffer many things, and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes, and 
be killed. And after that, three days again, rise. Now, we don't have Jesus making this statement here in Mark's gospel, but Mark is inserting this to help us understand that after it was out that Jesus is the Messiah, the proclamation of humanity coming from Peter, the, the consensus sort of view from the disciples is that we believe that you are the Christ. Jesus goes, yes, and this is what that means. This is what being the Messiah means, guys. And so this, and then two other times throughout the rest of Mark's gospel, Jesus is going to make this claim. This is what it means to be God's son. This is what it means for me to be the Messiah. I'm not coming to overthrow the Roman rule. I'm not coming to get rid of the physical oppression. I'm not coming to deal with these specific things. This is what it means for me to be the Messiah. Jesus uses the title, the Son of Man. He has to be rejected by the religious authorities from the Jewish perspective. He has to be chastised by the elders and chief priests and scribes. He must be killed. And after that, he will Easter, right? That's what we've got. So Jesus lays out exactly for the disciples as things are going to happen. We have it recorded three times, but you kind of get this sense that this was a regular conversation that they were having. Because now, now the message is out. The secret's out now. The disciples know. And even though Jesus is telling them to hold back, it's primarily so that the Jews don't come and make him their king, which is the exact opposite of what they should have been understanding, is that Jesus already is the king. But look at what it says in verse 32. And Jesus said these things, or a better way to translate it is, he made this very clear to them. He made it abundantly clear to them that this is what the Messiah's role and purpose is. I'm, going to, I'm here to suffer and die and rise again. That's my purpose. That's what it means to be God's Messiah. The disciples still don't understand this. So Peter takes him aside and begins to rebuke him. Some translations say rebuke him sternly or correct him. Correct is a bad translation. Basically what's happening here is Peter is chastising Jesus. He's saying, hey Jesus, you're wrong about who you are. No, 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 no. You can't suffer and die. That's not how the Messiah works. That's not what God's plan is about. Peter, Jesus, you're, you're not understanding your role because we understand it. We've been suffering. Our people have been longing for this day for so long. And now you're coming here and you're telling me that you're not going to fulfill everything that I want you to fulfill? Isn't that kind of interesting how we often do the same stuff, right? But Jesus, turning and seeing his disciples, he then rebuked Peter. Now, what's interesting about this word, whoops, about this word rebuke is that the only other times that it shows up in the, in the way that it's used is when Jesus is casting out demons. So basically Peter is saying, no, Jesus, you're wrong. And Jesus goes, no, Peter, you're wrong. You see, the, you kind of get the thrust of the importance of this text, right? Peter has rightly identified Jesus for who he is. He takes Jesus aside and goes, but you don't know what that means, Jesus. And Jesus says, no, Peter, you have no idea. You're not seeing this clearly. You're not focusing on the right thing. And then we have one of these problematic statements in the New Testament. He says, get behind me, Satan. Now, here's the question. Did um, Jesus believe Peter to be the devil? No. Um, let's agree to that. Did Jesus believe Peter was oppressed or, or possessed by a devil or demons? Maybe, but probably not. 
When Peter takes Jesus aside, he uses, Mark specifically uses the word, he says, rebukes in the same sense of, like I said, that when the, Jesus casts out the demons. And so Jesus is basically saying to Peter, I have to get this out of you. You have to see this correctly. You need to see this right. This isn't Jesus saying to Peter, Peter, you're the devil. He's saying, you're not seeing things from the perspective I need you to see them. What's interesting about this here is the last time that Jesus told Satan to get lost was at the temptation in the wilderness. Where the devil comes after the baptism of Jesus, he goes into the wilderness and he's having this, uh, this 40 days of fasting and prayer and preparation for his public ministry. And the devil comes and he starts to attack Jesus in temptation. And the, the ultimate, the pre-ultimate uh, temptation that the devil was trying to put on Jesus is, if you'll bow down and worship me, you can be the king without all the suffering. If you bow down and worship me, Jesus, if you bow down and worship Satan, then what you're able to do is, I'll give you the kingdoms of the world. And you don't even have to suffer to do it. That's the temptation. What's Peter doing? He's saying the exact same thing that Satan was saying. He's saying, no, no, no. You are the Messiah in the way that I need you to be the Messiah, not in the way that you think that you are. And so Jesus turns to Peter, not only, but to the disciples and says, guys, you might see who I am by identity, but you're not seeing right yet. And this is the reason for it. Jesus says, you, Peter, disciples, you are not setting your mind on the things of God. You're just concerned about the stuff of man. You're not seeing things correctly. You're not seeing things right. See, when Mark writes this gospel, when he, when he records these things, what's important to understand is he's, he's not just writing down and sitting there by himself and going like, okay, and then this happened today, and then this happened today, and then this happened today. It's not his like personal journal, right? I think that's kind of the way that we often see the writing of the Bible. It's like, well, the guys just kind of sat there and they're like, well, and on Tuesday, when Jesus fed the 5,000 people, Peter was really concerned about this other thing. And then when Jesus fed the 4,000 people, they were really concerned about the fact that we didn't have bread and Jesus made us. He was, he was very upset about that. No, no. Mark sat down with Peter and wrote this out for purpose. It's specific. Every time we're reading the Bible, we need to understand that these men, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote laboriously over a long period of time to build a case, to build an argument for what it is that we're going to see and why we should question what's here. So specifically, Mark places this text of Peter seeing clearly after the blind man seeing clearly for a reason. It's that speech act thing. The disciples, they were just like the blind man at Bethsaida after the first touch. They could see, but not all the way. They were able to understand and perceive, but they weren't understanding fully. They had seen the declarations and heard the proclamations of the demon saying, yes, this is the Holy One of God. And, and, and they were there and present in those moments, but they're still not fully understanding who Jesus is as the Son of Man. So why would he position this story here? It's not necessarily because it's sequential, but because this verse, Mark chapter 8, verse 29 through 33, is the hinge on which everything flows from. So I want you to view it this way. Mark 28, 29 is actually the exact center of Mark's gospel. It's not an accident, it's on purpose. And the first half of Mark's gospel is all about the things that Jesus does to prove that he's God. And it leads to this question, who am I? And they rightly identify, and then everything after 8.33 to the end of the book, 16.8, is now this is what that means. 
The first half of Mark's gospel is, who is Jesus? The second half of Mark's gospel is, this is what that looks like. Does it make sense? You tracking with me there? So why does he put this directly in the center? To help us understand that God's kingdom does not look like our kingdom. God's kingdom does not look like our view of what this should be. What's the core of the message? We can be just as blind as the disciples are when we don't have clarity on what God's kingdom looks like. We can be just as blind as the disciples were in identifying Jesus correctly, saying, yes, Jesus is God, but our hearts being so far away from what that looks like that we get confused and distracted and we start telling Jesus, no, this is what you're supposed to do in my life. I want what I want, not what you want, right? Can we acknowledge that that's what we do? See, the confession about Jesus, while Peter and the disciples don't completely understand it, is the complete and utter focal point of human history. Everything hangs on this statement. You, Jesus, are the Messiah. And where does he get that from? Because the, remember I said they, their view of the Messiah was, he's going to come and overthrow the Roman rulers. He's going, to, he's going to lift the oppression off of us. He's going to be the king like David was. Well, they get that from Isaiah but they don't get it correctly from Isaiah. There's three passages in Isaiah that are very important. Isaiah 35, five and six says this. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened, our passage today. The ears of the deaf will be unstopped, Mark chapter six. And the lame shall leap like a deer, Mark chapter two. And our tongue, the tongue of the mute shall sing for joy, Mark six. Isaiah 53 says, but the suffering servant is actually God's Messiah. This is what Isaiah 53 says. Who has believed what the, he has heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. This is the key. He was despised and rejected by men. Mark 8, 32. He was rejected by man, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief as one whom men hide their faces and despise and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him as stricken, as smitten, as afflicted by God because they don't have a right view on the Messiah. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our sins and upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. By his wounds we are, what? Healed. Because all like we are sheep who have gone astray. We have turned every one of us to our own way. And the Lord has laid on his Messiah the iniquity of us all. And then we have to read Isaiah 61, which says that the spirit of the Lord is upon me. This is the prophetic voice about the Messiah himself speaking of himself. Because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance to our God and to comfort all those who mourn. That's the Messiah of the Bible. It's not overthrow Rome. It's not to come and give you what you want. It's to do this. Jesus knew who he was. He knew what his kingdom purpose was and he knew what the Messiah was about and was supposed to do. And it isn't until Jesus reveals it fully to the disciples do they start to put it together. So what do we have to do? If you notes, you got some blanks. Seeing clearly, we must keep affirming Jesus' identity. Now, what I mean by that is we don't start to view him as with our own lenses, 
Remember how I used the, the glasses thing earlier? If I used Wendy's glasses, I ain't going to see, right? She uses mine. She's not going to see well either. If we understand Jesus by title, but not identity, we miss the point. If we've got the title right, you are God, but we don't understand what that means. We're not getting the kingdom clearly. Because what happens if we get this wrong? What happens if we overemphasize some of Jesus' character to the default of others? See, when we affirm Jesus' identity correctly, then we're actually following the Jesus of the Bible. Because let me tell you, folks, there are a whole lot of places calling themselves churches today who punt on this. Jesus can be whoever you want him to be. Because it's about what it means to me. Oh man, I hate that statement. When people ask the question, well, what does this passage mean to you? Wrong question. What does this passage mean to God? First and foremost. Because when we affirm Jesus' identity properly, clearly, then we're actually following and understanding that his kingdom purposes are for us to be a part of this thing. There's so many churches who punt on this. They shirk the responsibility. There are too many Christians who are giving a correct answer like Peter, but not knowing what that means. So think about it from a discipleship and an evangelism perspective. If we're showing a false Jesus to people in our churches, who are we leading them to be like? Not the Jesus of the Bible. What if Jesus didn't correct Peter? said, no, Jesus, you're wrong. And Jesus said, like, okay. The whole rest of the thing falls apart. What about from an evangelistic perspective? What's the purpose of the church? To be the hope of the world and proclaim good news to captives, just like Jesus did. To welcome them into God's kingdom. That's the purpose. That's the point, right? If we get Jesus wrong, who are we inviting people to? Certainly nobody who can save them. Because if it's not the Jesus of the Bible, as he declares and describes himself, then we can't get this right. And truly, life and death, eternity is at stake when we get this question wrong. We can't afford to get it wrong. So what do we need to do? We need to make sure that we are fully aware of the Jesus that we're following and worshiping. We need to let the Bible tell us who he is. We need to allow for the scriptures to dictate our beliefs about the Messiah. The whole council of scripture needs to be involved in this so that we understand that Jesus is proved true on the claims that he makes by what he has done. We have to get Jesus right. Also seeing clearly means we keep accepting Jesus' way. Remember what Peter wanted? Be the Messiah. That's what we want. Make us powerful. Make us awesome. Make us look glorious. Reestablish the kingdom. Get rid of the Romans. Well, Jesus' way is I'm going to suffer and I'm going to die and I'm going to rise again. Jesus' way is upside down. It doesn't make sense to our kingdom mentality. Jesus regularly upset the view of those who were around them about what it meant to follow God. Oftentimes it was counterintuitive. And being in the kingdom means that we don't seek our own honor. It means that we love and offer compassion in a self-sacrificing, self-effacing way. It means that we put others first to the detriment of ourselves. It's the way of being in the mess of life with other people. It's the way of a harp that is so deeply connected to God and his will and his mission for the world that we understand this as its core message. 
To follow Jesus, as we're going to see in next week's text, is to take up a cross and die to self every day. That's the message. That's Jesus' way. We have to count that cost. Please hear me. I love you, church. Coming on a Sunday does not make you a disciple of Jesus. It doesn't. Now, it certainly isn't less than that. Oh, but it is more. Accepting Jesus' way means that we are willing to do the upside-down things of life that seemingly don't make sense. And when our world looks at them and say, this is wrong, and this is weird, or this doesn't make sense to me, or whatever, we call back and say, this is what God has called us to. There is a cost to kingdom discipleship. We're going to talk about that at length next week. And then lastly, seeing clearly means we keep our attention on kingdom things. Kingdom things. Whose kingdom are we talking about? Come on, whose kingdom is it? Whose church is this? We're not building some silo. We're not building some thing to make us look great. Who cares? Really? Because what's the point? Only what's done for Jesus is going to last, right? We have to keep our attention on kingdom things. Jesus says things like this. He says, don't worry about storing up treasures for yourself here. Store up treasures for yourself where? In heaven. Why? Because moths can't get them. Thieves can't steal. That stuff lasts. He also says things like this. Seek God's kingdom and his righteousness and all the other peripheral things will be added to you. Because when we get the first thing first, then the rest of it makes sense. We need to understand that Jesus is here to proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God, that it's at hand, that it's here presently now. And then when we follow him correctly, when we follow him rightly, when we've got our eyes on Jesus, we can't help but push against the gates of hell. That's what it means to be the church. Having our attention on kingdom things is that we set our minds and hearts on God's plan and God's purpose in the world so that we can truly pray as Jesus taught us, your will be done, your kingdom come on earth as it's happening right now in heaven. Not my will be done. Oh, how easy is that prayer to pray? But your will be done. Your kingdom here on earth. See, Peter had the wrong perspective. He was seeing things from an already decided human response. His reason didn't make a whole lot of sense because he believed what he was supposed to believe. The Messiah was going to come and overthrow the Roman rulers. No. So we need to be willing to put aside our view if we are wrong about Jesus and claim what is true. And this is the hill to die on. Because if we get Jesus wrong, we get the whole thing wrong, right? Seeing the kingdom clearly means that we keep affirming Jesus's true identity. It means that we keep accepting Jesus and his way and doing that. And it means that we need to focus our attention on heaven, on kingdom realities, on what Jesus made aware to us, that it's his kingdom. It's not our own. The most important thing that I can leave you with is this. Don't look for ways that Jesus can serve your agenda. Look for ways that you can fall in line with his. 
Don't ask Jesus to come and be the type of Messiah that you think you need. Allow him to be the one that he is. Don't put yourself in this position where you think that you've got it figured out and that Jesus can't possibly do something that upsets your happiness or upsets your your view of what's supposed to happen, but instead understand that God's kingdom is upside down. To our human minds, it sometimes just doesn't make sense. Oh, but man, is it worth it. And we're going to see all about that next week. Let me pray for us. Father, we would ask that you would give us eyes to see clearly the person of Jesus. Would, Would what has been preached today, what has been shared today, out of your word, God, move us to understand and know that you are the king. You are the Christ. Help us not just be people who, I, who correctly identify you with our words, but correctly identify you with our lives. So we don't want to invite people to something that's false. We, want, we don't want to preach a gospel that doesn't have the power to save. We want to be about Jesus and his kingdom. That's what West Park is for. So do in us, God, what only you can do, that we would reflect the beauty of Christ, the truth of his gospel, and the proclamation of his kingdom here on earth. We ask for his sake and our good. Amen.